Well, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find Exodus chapter 24 on page 82. I'd invite everybody to have open a copy of God's Word. What if God had written you a letter and it was sitting in front of you? You think you'd read it? Well, he has. And it's in the pews in front of you. Exodus chapter 24, we are returning this morning to our series on Exodus. It's been a while since we've been here, so we'll be doing a little catch up. But we've reached a, just a fantastic moment, a startling moment. Uh, and the centerpiece you'll see is that they saw God, um, which we'll unpack a little bit this morning. Let's pray and ask God's help as we come to his word. Our Father in, our, in heaven, we thank you that you love us and that you're committed to us. We thank you for your word and we ask that you would meet with us this morning in it by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Exodus chapter 24, I think I'm a bit hot. Does that sound a bit hot? Could you turn me down just a little bit, Frankie? Um, Exodus 24, thank you, sir. Exodus 24, starting at verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood, excuse me, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, when I look at my wedding photos, I think, man, that guy looks pretty young. Now, you might still think that. I felt young. In fact, I can't believe anybody thought I was old enough to get married. I was 23 at the time. 
But you know, that, that attitude of, man, that 23-year-old, he looks young, that's a, that's a product of our times. In 1960, do you know what the average age of marriage was in the U.S.? 20 years old. And year by year, it has steadily moved upwards to the point now the average age for women is 27.6 and men is 29 and a half. And rounded up, that's 30. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. Sociologists are getting a lot of grants trying to study what's going on. But one of the issues is our society's fear of commitment. The idea of getting locked in. A wedding formalizes a relationship, a new relationship. You have the the declaring of intent, presenting of the bride, the pastor's marriage, and those vows, which usually end with what? Until death do us part. As a society, I think we're we're scared to make commitments, even for a two-year satellite contract. But when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, He's not afraid of commitment. He's committed to you. He's committed to His people, and He's committed to you. His love is steadfast and and unmovable. It is an everlasting, always and forever, never giving up kind of love. And it's for you. He is committed to you, and He hasn't been afraid to show it. In this passage this morning, as we return to Exodus, we see the formalization of God's relationship with His people. A relationship that is already very much there by His grace and love, but in it, He especially makes known His commitment to His people. Well, it's been a while since we've been in Exodus. Perhaps we ought to catch up to where we are. You'll remember that God's people had been in slavery in Egypt for uh, 400 years or so, 430. They had been there for a while and life was bad. They called out to God and God remembered the commitment. Now remember, it's not like he'd forgotten. God acted upon the former promise he had made. That he had made to Abraham. When he told him in Genesis 15, hey, I'm going to send you down to Egypt. It's going to be a while. And then I'm going to bring you out. And it was time to bring him out. And he defeated the Egyptians first in ten plagues, and then later their army at the Red Sea, when the defenseless Hebrews watched as God killed the mightiest superpowers army in the world right before their eyes, killing them as the waters poured upon them, the same waters that had brought salvation to God's people. God has provided them as they have wandered through the wilderness heading to Mount Sinai. He has provided them water to drink, a bread-like substance called manna to eat. And He has loved them and cared for them even when their faith has faltered, even when their faith was weak, or even when they found, found themselves downright disobedient. Now they are encamped around Mount Sinai. We have come full circle to where it all began. This is where God appeared to Moses out of the burning bush. And he has brought God's people, two to three million people or so, now to the the bottom of Mount Sinai. God has met with them already once. He has met with them when uh, he uh, gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. 
And there we read that having heard God's voice boom at them, declaring to them the Ten Commandments, God's people were terrified. And they said, let us no longer hear the voice of the Lord. Hey, Moses, you go and talk to God and come back here and tell us what He said. And so Moses ascended up onto the mountain where he has been meeting with God. And he receives the instructions of chapters 21 to 23, which we've discussed back in November, all those minutia laws, the ones that we had to work hard to apply to our lives. That's called the Book of the Covenant. And now Moses has come back down. And God directs him, okay, now it's time to formalize this agreement. What is this agreement? It's called a covenant. God has, throughout all of history, expressed His commitment to His people in a covenant, a promise to them, a formally um, regulated relationship. We see it all the way back with Adam and Eve. Remember what He told Adam and Eve? If, If you obey Me, you will live. Don't eat of that tree. Instead, multiply on the earth, have dominion over it, work this field. And then He fell. But God was still committed to Adam and Eve, wasn't He? In the midst of the curses of Genesis 3, of it's going to be hard when you work and it's going to hurt when you have babies, there's still the promise of food and children. There's still that promise. He's still committed to His people, even when they would run away from Him. As Mark has mentioned with Noah, what commitment did God have to Noah? Out of all the people in the world, he said, I'm committed to you guys. Eight people. You're getting on this boat with all the animals. Everybody else is dead. I'm committed to you guys. And with Abraham, he says, I'm committed to your family. We're going to have a formal ceremony in Genesis 15 in which we're going to split animals. It's a strange thing to read. Split animals and God's going to walk right through it to formalize this this, this agreement, this covenant. Now we get to Moses. The covenant that God makes with Moses that He's committed to His people. Have you ever wondered if God's committed to you? Have you thought, maybe, maybe today, maybe this week, God's not really on my side. Does He still love me? Does He still rejoice over me with singing? One of the things that was a blessing that came out of our wedding was this ring right here that Christy gave me as a reminder, as a symbol of her commitment to me. And I gave her one like it. God has given us also signs of commitment. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. What's going on in this text? What's going on in this amazing worship service? Put yourself in the shoes of, of these Israelites. There you are, two to three million of your brothers and sisters in Christ standing around Mount Sinai. And there is the glory cloud on top of Mount Sinai. You've been terrified. You didn't want to hear God speak anymore. Moses has been gone a while, and now you see him tromping down the the mountain. You think, oh, what's, what's going to happen now? Well, it's time for probably the most important worship service of the entire Old Testament. We would recognize many of the elements of these worship. It begins with a call to worship, just like we... I don't know if they had announcements back then. But it begins with a call to worship, just like Mark had this morning. And this call to worship is the reading of the, God, of, of the law that Moses has just received from God. And then they say something very... Um, well, I'll let you decide what you think about it. They said, yeah, we'll do all that. Everything that you've said, we will do. 
And so having heard their initial response of, yeah, we'll do those things. The next day, and uh, you think our services go long. The next day, the service continues. And first thing in the morning, Moses rises up and he goes and he builds an altar of stone to the Lord. And then he takes other stones and makes 12 pillars around this altar. Representing, each one representing a tribe of the people of Israel. Highly symbolic. What, what does he do next? Well, he, uh, he takes animals. He sends young men who are stand-ins to what will become the, the priestly order. And they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, a burnt offering was really expensive. Something like an oxen here. A a burnt offering was for sin, and you burned the whole thing up. We've got some folks here who own cows or have worked with them. They're not cheap. And especially back then, they were even more expensive. And you sacrificed the whole thing to God. But a peace offering, now that was fun. Because you roasted it. And God got a small portion of it, a memorial portion that was burned up to the Lord as, a, as an offering to Him. And it was, uh, it was roasted. And then everybody got to have a barbecue, celebrating that they were at peace with God. And so after the sacrifices have been made, Moses takes the blood, or in the process of that, he, he, he takes the blood and he takes half of it and he throws it against the altar. But the other half he saves for a very special purpose. He had written down everything that they had agreed to the night before. And now it's time to hear it again. Have you ever signed a mortgage? I've done two in the last eight years or so. Perhaps it was different before Frank Dodd and all the financial mess. But y'all, they're long. Have you ever read a mortgage that you've, you've, uh, you've signed? The, the lawyer says, hey, you can, you can read it, take your time, but you know he's charging you by the hour. And you initially sign, and you sign an initial, and you have no clue what you just signed. But you know you just promised to pay them with your firstborn for the next 30 years. Well, God's people hear what they've agreed to a second time, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Yeah, I agreed to it yesterday, but let's, let's go over that one more time. So Moses reads out, he preaches to them the book of the covenant. And they say, very dramatically, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, after this, he does something rather strange. He takes the blood that was in the basins, and he throws it on people. Now, we don't know if this was the 70 elders. Probably, I guess. It's kind of hard to throw blood on two to three million people. Probably, he threw it on the 70 elders representing all of God's people who have just responded quite loudly all that you have said we will do. We will be obedient. And when he does so, he says in verse 8, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, what are we to take away from this text? There's so much here. The first is that salvation is only through blood. There must be blood spilled in order for our sin to be dealt with. Our sin is so serious that something has to die in order for me to live. All the sins that I think are minor, the things that I think or say in my head that no one else knows, or a slight moment of anger at somebody, or or reacting unkindly, that deserves 
Something has to die in order for that to be made up for. Not just the quote-unquote big ones. In order for God's people to meet with their God in this formal ceremony of ratifying the covenantal treaty, lots of things have to die. All these burnt offerings. God was committed to His people. But in order for for sins to be forgiven, in order for the things that kept God's people from His people, kept God from His people, something had to die. There had to be blood spilled. Now what's the problem? Because Hebrews chapter uh, 10 tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Well, we just threw a bunch of blood on the altar symbolizing the atonement, the forgiveness that comes from sin. What's going on? It is pointing to the blood of Christ by whom all of God's people in the Old and New Testament have been saved. Slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation tells us. God is outside of time and He works like that. 1 Peter 1.19 puts it this way, But with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. We sang it earlier, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And He is so committed to you You are so precious to Him that God Almighty would send His Son to bleed out on the cross for you and me. Physical drops of the God-man Jesus hit the dirt outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago because He loves you. Because He's committed to you. Another thing that we can see here is that we are saved by God's grace. Do you think anybody was fooled when all those folks said twice all that you have said we're going to do? Certainly God wasn't. Our relationship with God is not based on our obedience. It is in spite of our disobedience which Christ has paid for on the cross. In fact, if you know the history of of Exodus, if you just go over uh, to Exodus 32, y'all, we're just a few weeks away in the chronology of Exodus from the golden calf incident. Moses is about to go up on the mountain for 40 days, plus or minus a week. And meanwhile, while he's up there, they're building an altar, a golden calf to bow down before. And it was just a few weeks ago, they said, all that you have said, we will do. Remember number two? No graven images. That's a big one. No other gods. That's the first one. But before we throw too many stones, let's just look at ourselves. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm a mess. It doesn't take very long for my waking moments for sin to be crouching at my door again. We need God's grace. And this is what happens, this is what is shown with the second set of blood. Remember the basins, they were saved for the end of the ceremony in which Moses would sprinkle either everybody or the 70 elders with the blood. And it's showing us two things. The first is there are consequences for breaking our covenant commitments to God, that there must be death. Blood has been shed because of death. If you break the law, you will die. That's what God had told Adam and Eve. And it's still true except for the other meaning of the blood, and that is that there is blood spilt for you. It is the blood of Christ. He has taken upon Himself the very punishment that we deserve. We deserve to die. We deserve the curses of that covenant. 
But instead, Christ has taken it on himself. Why? Because he's committed to you. He loves you. Do you feel messy this morning? Do you not have all the answers this morning? Do you feel rotten this morning? Do you feel hurt, shameful, guilty? If you're in Christ Jesus, God is committed to you. And he's not afraid to tell others about it. It's interesting. It's not interesting. It's fantastic. 1 Corinthians 11.25, when it came time for the Last Supper, what did Jesus say? We read there that this, in the same way also after supper he took the cup. And what did he say? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. He is quoting this passage. He is quoting this passage. Verse 8, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. As good as this was in the Old Testament, it is even better now that Christ has come. There was a new covenant coming. And it is in life, that the new co- it, is in, it is in the new covenant that life is found by the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Here is the one who was punished because you and I, we could not obey all the words that God had spoken. He laid down his life for you. So then we, after this worship service, Moses and a few others go up a little bit up the mountain. It's just them this time. And it's Moses and Aaron, his brother, and Aaron, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They'll end up being killed a little bit later, uh, not Nexus. And is that Numbers? I think it's in Numbers, 10 uh, because they seek to worship God in a way that he doesn't desire. Uh, and then 70 elders representing all of Israel, and they are going to go meet with God. It is staggering what we read in verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. They were under his feet, excuse me, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Why is that staggering? Well, later in Exodus 33 20, God is going to tell Moses, For man shall not see me and live. John 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. What do we make of this passage? We're not sure what they saw. They saw God. Did they see His glory cloud? Was this Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ? This is what's going on in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah has an image of God, a vision of God, we're told later uh, by the Gospel of John. Commentators spilled a bunch of ink on this one. We're not sure exactly what this experience was. They met with God. But whatever they saw, they only described... Really, his footstool. Overwhelmed, perhaps, by the glory of God, they could not actually look. I don't know. But here was God meeting with his people. And it's very clear here, it says, And God did not reach out and touch these men. They deserved to die. They were in the presence of a holy God, but because atonement had been made, because there was peace with God's people and God, they were welcomed there to fellowship with him. You know, after a, a big treaty is signed, um, there's often a, a meal, right? And everybody's showing off their best chefs, and it's all very ornate and formalized. But why? Because a treaty has been signed, and there's peace between the nations. You cannot have the meal unless you first sign the treaty. Well, here, there is a meal because the treaty has been signed. It's said, and they ate and drank. What did that even look like? We don't know. 
But here's the thing. Whatever went on that day, and as amazing as it was, it still pales in comparison to what happens here in our sanctuary the first Sunday of every month as we come to the Lord's table. What were they eating and drinking? It is likely they were eating the peace sacrifices. That's what you did. The peace offering, you would eat that. It is likely they brought it up with them. And here's the thing, they're eating the sacrifice. And what do we do in the Lord's Supper? Not physically speaking, not eating His physical body and blood, but spiritually speaking, we are feasting upon the sacrifice that has brought peace between us and God. They have been sprinkled clean by the blood which we symbolize in the waters of baptism. We are sprinkled clean by God's blood, by Christ's blood rather, and it is shown forth in the outward sign of baptism, pointing us to the cleansing blood of Jesus. This is better, the Lord's Supper is, because they just saw a little bit. Whatever they saw when they said they saw God, God has made Himself known. It points us to Christ's coming. For John 1, 18, it goes on to tell us something amazing. It says, no one has ever seen God, true. But then it goes on. There's a semicolon, hard stop here. That's important. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. The only God who is Christ, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. The only God has made God known to us. How? By the Word becoming flesh. Thousands would see God in Christ when He came. Is God committed to you? You better believe it. Just a few got to meet that day. But I love the language of Hebrews 4.16 in the King James Version. Let us therefore boldly come unto the throne of grace. Why? Boldly. Just a few. 74 got to meet with Him that day. But each and every Christian gets to meet with Jesus before the throne of God because of what Christ has done for us. Well, quickly, our text ends with Moses heading into glory. He, he gets, he, there's another tier here. He and Joshua set out for the top. Joshua won't get go the whole way. For six days, it appears that Moses waited outside the cloud at the top of the mountain, and God finally said, Come on in, Moses. It's time to meet. And he entered in and got an amazing glimpse of glory. Walked into the glory cloud of God. What was that experience like? But you know what? He ended up having to leave 40 days later. And Moses didn't get entered in the promised land. But y'all, one day we will get to enter the true promised land. And there we'll see Moses there. And we'll behold God's glory forever, never to leave. And all the pain and sorrow, sickness and death, all the failures and stumbles and foibles that we've committed this week, today, next week, forever, those will be gone. We will behold our God and His glory face to face. Until then, we have encouragement. Y'all, this life is hard. There's very little easy in this life. But God is committed to you. Cast your cares upon Him, we read in 1 Peter. Why? Because He cares for you. We're going to stumble. We're going to fail. It's going to be messy. We're going to sin. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to hurt our Lord. We're going to cause Him to grieve. But y'all, He loves you. But one day, 
He will return and take us to glory. For all these hard days will be but a distant memory. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Savior, we thank you for your commitment to us, even where our commitment to you falters. We thank you that you have made known your commitment to your people, known before all of creation. And we yearn for that day where you acknowledge the sons of God before all creation again as you welcome us into home, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Until then, Lord, calls us to live lives that glorify you and depend on you forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask it. Amen.